Hello, hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People Podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane and Tony Okamoto. Today, we are so excited to bring back Dr. Will Bolsowitz to talk about gut health and specifically how we optimize our gut health. In the last episode, we had him on to talk about why gut health is so important and sort of the physiology of of our gut microbiome and why that matters so much for our overall health and well-being, for disease prevention, and the power it has on uh, our our energy and well-being. But today, we're bringing him back to really dig in to the practical application of how. How do we empower our gut, empower our microbiome to be its healthiest version of itself? We're going to dive into fiber. Uh, he's the expert on all things fiber. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about prebiotics, probiotics, postbiotics, the issue with some restrictive diets. We're going to talk about raw versus cooked food, uh, eating a diversity of plants, fermented foods. And if that's something we should be eating, we're going to touch a little bit about sprouting alcohol and, um, and more. So this was an amazing episode. Tony and I both love it and it's packed with information. We can't wait for you to listen. Dr. B is just such a really fantastic resource. And I have learned so much. Michelle and I have been vegan for over 15 years each, and we're still learning all the time. So we hope that you enjoy this this episode too. Dr. Bolsowitz is an award-winning gastroenterologist, internationally recognized gut health expert, and is a New York Times bestselling author of Fiber Fueled and the Fiber Fueled Cookbook, which is recently out. He has authored dozens of articles published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, has countless presentations at national meetings, and has presented to Congress and the USDA and has taught over 10,000 students how to heal and optimize their gut health. This is a great episode and we hope you love it. Before we dive into this episode, we want to give a big thank you to our sponsors, Carviva and Maxine's Heavenly. Carviva is on a mission to create really great tasting, functional, organic juices and smoothies. And they actually use an in-house hydroponic farming system to grow really clean, sustainable ingredients. Um, They have a whole array of juices and smoothies that you can check out on their website, carviva.com. But for example, they have like a peach mandarin kiwi that has ground mushroom powder and they have a mango goji berry with lemon and red dates. Um, Goji berries are superfoods. So they're just finding all these functionally um, very potent ingredients, whole food ingredients, and turning them into a drink that's really easy and convenient on the go for the busy person who wants to eat or shall I say drink healthfully. (laughs) I really like the cherry and pomegranate one. That one is my favorite. It's really beautiful too. So if you pour it in a glass or or um, put it in a smoothie, it tastes really, really tasty. You can find them in some grocery stores on Amazon and you can learn more at carviva.com, K-A-R-V-I-V-A.com, which we'll also include in our show notes. Dr. B... You are the first person we've ever had on our podcast. This is the end of the fourth season, and we have never had a guest come back for a part two. We love you so much, and you have such great information that we had to have you back. So thank you so much for coming back on the Plant Powered People podcast. 
it's like, this is one of those pinch yourself moments when you're just like, is this really my life? Am I really the first person in the history of this podcast to <laughs> get this opportunity? I mean, it's really cool. Thank you. Well, and thank you for taking the time in the middle of your book tour. You're on week two of the New York Times bestseller list and just all the fiber fueled energy just hitting the planet right now, thanks to you, is amazing. And I know you've been going nonstop. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, my we've, pleasure. I mean, the book tour that's taking place out of my own home here. So we have a we have a five week old baby. So I'm like basically up all night and I'm changing diapers. And then in between, I'm doing Instagram lives. So here we are. But even more, but even more uh, like heartwarming to us that in the midst of new baby life and also New York Times bestseller cookbook tour life, uh, you are here with us for a second time. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us. This time, it's a little bit different. Our last episode, which we super loved, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to about number twos and what they should look like and how frequently <laughs> they should happen and uh, and why they should buy your cookbook and your, and your, and your book, Fiber Fueled. Um, we want to dive in a little bit deeper about the topic of the cookbook, which and, and, and the book, your work in general with fiber. We didn't get to talk a lot about that in the last episode. And that is what you do. And I am personally have been really interested in how often I can use the question. Okay. What I'm trying to say is when someone asks me for the one bajillionth time about my protein deficiencies, uh, how I can reverse the conversation about their likely ha- how they likely have a fiber deficiency, and so I'm really excited to learn more about this so that I can use it in my own personal life selfishly. I mean, I'm shaking my head over here. You guys just can't see it, but maybe you can hear it through the microphone. Um, so you know, it's just it's a point of frustration for me, and I think for many people who are vegan, because there's this sort of common uh, idea that people who are vegan, they are malnourished, they are low in protein, they can't build muscle, they can't be athletes. And, you know, I mean, like the entire point of Game Changers was not to say that a vegan diet is superior for athletic performance, although there are some ways in which I think it is. But it's just to say, like, stop telling us that this is not possible. Look at these people. It is so clearly possible. And And the amount of protein excess that we have in the United States, there is no one with the exception of those who are suffering with like very ser- serious medical issues. And the medical issue that they have is what's driving their protein deficiency. And there can be different reasons for that. And frankly, it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. But like there is basically no one in the United States who is protein malnourished. And yet 95% of America is not just mildly deficient in fiber. 95% of America is wildly deficient in fiber. And this is a dietary nutrient that research like compellingly says that it can reduce our likelihood of dying from heart disease, dying from cancer, uh, having a stroke, being diagnosed with diabetes, being diagnosed with Alzheimer's, being diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. These are six of the top 10 causes of death. We're missing out on it. We're all deprived in terms of fiber. I mean, 95%. And yet we still continue to fixate on the protein. I don't know if there's something intrinsic to us as humans with that, or if this is just a great marketing campaign, but either way, this is where we are. It's so clear. Can you take us a little bit 
back, 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 back to the very beginning of what is fiber and and how do we even get it? Well, uh, dietary fiber is this nutrient that I think it's time for us to revisit and um, rekindle our relationship with. Because I think many of us grew up with the idea that fiber is the orange drink that your grandma would have when you were a little kid. And you're like, oh, grandma's having her orange drink so that she can have a bowel movement. Here we go. Right. So instead, I see this thing where emerging science is painting a new picture of what dietary fiber is. And it is like, this is beyond exciting. This is, I would dare I say it, sexy. Like, this is sexy. This is so crazy how good this is. Dietary fiber is, first of all, a carbohydrate. So when people say, like, carbs suck, well, okay, you're including fiber in there. I don't know if you realize that. Um, and you'll find dietary fiber in plants. All plants have dietary fiber. You don't have to pick and choose. They all have dietary fiber. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. Now, plants almost have a monopoly. Not quite. Mushrooms also have dietary fiber, and mushrooms are technically not plants. They're fungi, but I'm going to consider them honorary plants because they basically behave very similar. But if you take a big stack of animal products, like the average American's eating 30 pounds of cheese and 220 pounds of meat, and I don't even know how many eggs, but a lot. And if you take that big, big fat stack of animal products, I could tell you very simply what the amount of fiber is that exists in there. It's simple math because it's zero. There's none. There is no fiber in animal products on any level. And so now fiber, the, one of the big misconceptions is that this is something that like simply goes in the mouth and we can't digest it. And it just kind of launches out the other end as a torpedo. That's not really true. Actually, it turns out that, I mean, there's some partial truth in there, which is that we as humans, we don't have the enzymes to break down fiber. But what's interesting is that like, as we were talking about in the last episode, we're not alone. We have this massive community of microorganisms. They may be invisible, but they outnumber our human cells. There's 38 trillion of them most concentrated inside of our colon. And what they're doing there is they're completely integrated into our physiology, but one of the most powerful ways that they are is they help us with digestion. We may lack the enzymes to break down fiber, like we, we literally don't have them. A single cellular bacteria could have hundreds of unique enzymes to break down fiber. And when you take them as a composite, like the whole of the microbiome, what you discover is that they have like literally tens of thousands of unique enzymes that humans lack, microbes have, and they're designed for the processing and breaking down of dietary fiber. So when food goes in our mouth, we're eating a salad, right? And those plants go in our mouth, we chew it up. We swallow it and it starts moving its way through our intestines. Our small intestine is about 15 to 20 feet long. Our colon is typically about five to seven feet long. And it's working its way through and it doesn't really change until boom, it hits the microbiome in the colon. All of a sudden, these microbes, they get into a feeding frenzy. They are excited 
because they're being fed. This is actually their preferred food. Microbes love dietary fiber. And they start processing it. They start breaking it down. They actually become stronger. We see that like there's growth of the of the um, fiber digesting microbes when you consume fiber. But then the key here is this, like we're not just supporting the microbiome. The microbiome is supporting us back. They're giving us like 10 times what we're giving them because the fiber stops being fiber and they actually transform it into what are called short chain fatty acids. Perhaps people have heard of butyrate, butyrate, acetate, propionate. These are the three main short chain fatty acids and they are produced from the consumption of dietary fiber. And these things are like literally, you guys, these are the most healing, most anti-inflammatory things that I have come across in my 20 years of study in medicine. And, you know, the short of it is this, if you're wondering like, why does dietary fiber reduce our risk of heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and chronic kidney disease, I've just told you. It's the production of these short chain fatty acids. And they do a heck of a lot more than just that. I could keep going. Um, so it's an exciting time. This discovery, like we have to look at this fiber and we need to be like raising our hands like, yes, this is awesome. So celebrated. Um, but yet it's like there's this womp, womp, womp because 95% of America is fiber deficient. So as plant-based people myself and Tony, but our listeners are all over the board, right? But I feel like I get a lot of fiber from just eating a lot of plants. I'm curious, like how much fiber do we actually need? Is there such a thing as too much fiber? And like, how can you tell where you are on that spectrum? Like, ooh, you should be eating more fiber <laughs> or, oh, you're good. You don't even have to worry about it. Yeah. Well, so one of the exciting things is that first of all, I'm going to answer the question. I'm going to tell you how many grams of fiber are recommended, but I'll just tell you that when you eat a plant-based, like plant-predominant diet, if you're truly doing that, you are getting your dietary fiber and you're going to be where you need to be. Um, so, but the recommended amount is for women, 25 grams of fiber per day. The average woman in the U S by the way, is at about 15 and a half. The recommended amount for men is 38 grams of fiber per day. And the average man is getting about 18. So that's where we're at right now. We have a long way to go, but part of this is that the average American is 10% plant-based and their number one plant is French fries. So when you move toward, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like you either laugh or you're going to cry, right? Those are the yeah. two options. Yeah. Yep. Or both. So, all right, Michelle, this is such a good question. Is there such a thing as too much fiber? Yes. Of course, there's such a thing as too much of anything. We need oxygen to sustain our life. Yet in the hospital, if I give a patient 100% oxygen because they have a breathing tube in, that's actually toxic. We could drink water to the point that we actually cause harm to our body. So there's always such a thing as too much. I mean, we can exercise to the point that we hurt ourselves. Mm -hmm. what, what is the sweet spot? Well, it's a personal thing. There is no generic answer that I say, hey, it's this. It depends on the state of your microbiome. When you consume dietary fiber, as I was noting just a few minutes ago, we are 100% reliant on our gut microbes for the processing and breaking down of fiber. 
which is the reason why it's hard for people that have a damaged gut to actually consume this. And they have to adapt their dietary fiber intake to what their gut is actually capable of doing. If you do too much, you're going to feel it. And it could be gas, bloating, but it could be also more intense than that. It could be cramps, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation. The bottom line is that when you go beyond what your body is capable of, you can like have discomfort or digestive upset that comes from that. I want people to think about this as conceptually similar, like the entire thing, everything we're talking about there, talking about now is analogous to exercise. Think of it like exercise. If you go to the gym, there is an amount of weight that you are capable of lifting. I'm quite sure that it's all, it's quite different for the three of us. Like we're not lifting the exact same stuff and you should really start with an amount that is appropriate for you and your capabilities. And the beautiful thing about exercise is that through that practice, you go, you do it, you challenge your body, your body rises to the challenge, you add new functionality, new capabilities that you didn't previously have. And then when you come back a week later, guess what you're doing? You're lifting a little bit more. That's exactly the way that the gut works. Much like with exercise, you want to become a runner, you train to run. You want to become a bodybuilder, you lift weights. You want a healthier gut, you have to consume these foods. But you start low. By starting low, you are reducing the amount of dietary fiber to a level that your body can actually handle. And you go slow. Going slow means that you incrementally start to increase over time. And what you'll find is that, like, how fast, Dr. B? Well, it depends on you. If your body feels like you're going too fast, it will provide feedback. The feedback is that I don't feel well. I have digestive symptoms. I have gas and bloating or I have something else. And that feedback is not meant to be feared because it's not actually harming your body. It's, it is uncomfortable, but it's not actually harming your body. But what it is, is it's your body saying to you, hey, hey, yo, slow it down a little bit, back off just a little bit, and we'll be good. And that's what you do. And you train your gut. I love that. I have a, a personal story. Oh, years ago, um, I went on a three-day juice cleanse. <laughs> juice cleanse. Whatever. I was trying to just like load my body with tons of nutrients. And the day that I started eating food again, like eating regular food packed with fiber, I've like never been in so much <laughs> pain in my stomach ever. I was just like, this is awful. And I wonder if in that short a period of time, three days, like it could have already impacted my microbiome biome to a point where introducing fiber again suddenly and, and fast shocked it. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing, Michelle, because your body is capable of a certain amount of work. And if you stop working it, then it grows weaker. Mm -hmm. And when we do juice, the problem that I have with juice is like there, there can be certainly some wonderful nutrients that exist in juice. I'm not um, like categorically against it. But the problem is like we're, we're removing the part that 95% of us are deficient in and we really need. We're removing the fiber. And right. so, so in three days, do what I expect like a radical worsening of your digestive function? Not necessarily. But what I will say is this. You guys would be shocked because we're all, you know, I would say like reasonably young, reasonably healthy uh, individuals. But like you could take a person who's in their 30s or 40s and put them into a hospital bed. 
And if they don't walk in three, four, five days, it's actually quite shocking how much loss of functionality they have to the point that sometimes they have to do physical therapy in order just to like get back to normal walking because they're so weak. It's, I mean, it's like quite shocking. For people who are having gut issues or like maybe they're feeling like they have an upset stomach or or they're feeling unwell in general, something that I hear all the time is, um, oh, you should start taking probiotics. Do you recommend probiotics? And then there are also other things like uh, post postbiotics, I think. Is that is that something that you talk about or recommend? So let's let's do the full breakdown if it's okay. And let's talk about all three, which are the prebiotics, the probiotics, and the postbiotics. Okay. Prebiotic is a term that we use that means food for your gut microbiome that has been proven to have benefits for humans. So it's not just beneficial to your gut microbes, it's beneficial to your gut microbes, and then in turn, beneficial to you. And there are three main prebiotics, fiber, resistant starches, and polyphenols, which are antioxidant compounds that basically you see represented in the different colors, the rainbow, uh, that exists within sort of the edible plant space. So what ties these three things together, fiber, resistant starches, and polyphenols? Well, they come from plants. Like they're borderline exclusive to plants. Um, so that's the first part of this. You have to feed the microbes if you want them to be empowered, right? Like if I'm not eating, then I become weak and hangry and I lose my focus and my ability to do quality work is like, you know, radically reduced. Same is true for these microbes. We have to empower them if we expect them to be the best version of themselves. And then there's the probiotics. Now, probiotic, most of us, when we hear this word, we're thinking of a capsule. And that is true. Um, it can come from a capsule. And when you consume one of these capsules, it contains a certain number and different, perhaps, species of microbes that have been demonstrated through clinical research to have benefits to humans. So that is the definition of a probiotic is a living microbe could be a bacteria, could be a fungi, but it's a living microbe that has been demonstrated to have health benefits for humans. You could take a capsule, but you also have microbes living inside of you. Many of the microbes that exist in these capsules, they're already there inside of you. And if you fed them, they would multiply. They would grow stronger. And then you wouldn't have to try to like basically call in the reserves. And when these two things come together, this is when it gets really, to me, super exciting. I, I, I apologize for being super nerdy over here. But you take these prebiotics, which again is like the stuff from plants, prebiotics, uh, you know, fiber, resistant starches, and polyphenols. You take that and you put it into contact with microbes, meaning the probiotics, prebiotics plus probiotics. This is how you get the postbiotics. The postbiotics are actually what matter. So if you have microbes that are not being fed, they're pretty much worthless. And if you consumed fiber, but you didn't have a microbiome, that fiber would be worthless. But that's not the way that this works. When you consume the prebiotics and you have a gut microbiome, you have 38 trillion in there, you have these two inputs, they come together 
And the end result is it coalesces into these postbiotics. So we mentioned the short-chain fatty acids. That's an example of the postbiotics. Let's talk about supplements, because that was really the question that you were asking me. Should people be taking a probiotic supplement? There is no denying that I have seen a bazillion people who have benefited from taking probiotics. But the issue is this. It's really not going to get the job done if you're not willing to do what's necessary in terms of your diet and lifestyle. If you're continuing to be on a super low fiber diet, that's like, okay, let me add more probiotics in there, but then we're never going to give them the prebiotics that they need to actually create the postbiotic. So to me, the value is this. We should be focusing on diet and lifestyle first. A plant-predominant diet is the path because by consuming that, you get all of these things. And this will take you to a certain extent. Like, you know, if you have a C minus gut, by simply addressing diet and lifestyle, you can bring this up to an A minus perhaps. And then maybe it's the probiotic or maybe it's a prebiotic supplement or maybe it's both that you sprinkle in there and it takes you from an A minus to an A and you achieve your health goals. So that's kind of the way that I see this. Now, real quick in terms of postbiotic supplements, there's no data yet. I have not seen data that is compelling that shows that these work. Perhaps it comes one day, but all of the data, when people celebrate butyrate, when they talk about how great these short-chain fatty acids are, like me, I wrote an entire chapter, chapter three of my first book is all about this. When we talk about this, it's always within the context of a person is consuming dietary fiber and they are getting these benefits as a result of that. It has never been that they take a supplement and then they get these benefits. So it's an assumption to say that they're the same. I don't believe that they are. This is so helpful and also so important because I feel like a lot of people spend hundreds of dollars a year getting probiotics and even now like prebiotics, soda. There's just, it's marketing buzzwords that are everywhere. So people are tuned in to like, oh, we need these things, but not the reality of like, okay, how does this actually functionally work in our bodies? And is it actually doing anything? And is it the best way or is eating just whole foods (laughs) a better way? I do have a question about antibiotics. So I have ulcerative colitis. My birth father had it. My birth biological grandfather had it. And I, I, I'm petrified of when I need to take antibiotics for various, you know, health incidences because it wipes out what's in your gut. So what would you say, like, tell me about that. What is the impact of antibiotics on our gut and how can we empower ourselves as much as possible to either rebuild a healthy gut, avoid antibiotics when possible and how severe is that situation and is maybe that where a case of taking probiotics afterwards is helpful what do we do about antibiotics it's a very interesting topic i think you're going to be surprised by my answer a little bit michelle at least one part of it so we'll get to that in a moment but let me build up to it so um first of all to vilify antibiotics would be wildly inappropriate of me because i think actually the greatest discovery in the history of medicine was penicillin. It happened during World War II. It completely transformed humanity in terms of our health. It added probably at least 15 years. If you went back to prior to that period of time, the top three causes of death were not heart disease, cancer, or anything else. They were, they were um, infectious diseases. And so this was a great and important discovery. Now, the problem is 
that we get seduced by anything that's that powerful. And that's what happened. Our healthcare system became seduced by the power within antibiotics, and we started prescribing them as a system, you know, frankly, like without even pausing for a moment to ask if they're necessary. Oh, you got the sniffles. Cool. Here's some an antibiotic. Go ahead and take that. Oh, it's probably a virus. Well, let me give you the antibiotic just in case. So for those who are listening at home, viruses are not treated with antibiotics. That would be a completely inappropriate use. And the problem is like we didn't have any scope or window to the gut microbiome until very recently, the last like 15, 18 years. But what happens when we take antibiotics is of course it destroys the microbiome. And it's not just targeting bad guys. You have to understand this is just bombing the microbiome. This is just destroying it, period. And so for anyone, regardless of who you are, I think that the first question anytime we approach antibiotics is, do I actually need an antibiotic? And I'm here to tell you that if you do need an antibiotic, then I 100% want you to take it. I don't want you to stop because of what you're hearing on this. <laughs> but I also think that it's completely fair game to ask very simple questions of your healthcare provider. Why do I need this antibiotic? What happens if I don't take this antibiotic? Do I have an alternative choice instead of the antibiotic? These are pretty simple questions. And then it allows you to become informed so you can make a choice on whether or not you think it's something that you need to do. If you take an antibiotic um, and you look at what happens to the gut microbiome, there is no question that when you do this, it's going to end up being different. Quick example, ciprofloxacin is a very frequently prescribed antibiotic. It's used for gut issues. It's used for urinary tract issues. And um, the research suggests that just five days of taking ciprofloxacin will actually reduce your gut microbiome by about 35%. And like common prescriptions of Cipro are 10 days or 14 days. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about like a fraction of that and you can already reduce your gut microbiome by 35%. And then it needs to be rebuilt. But the problem is it'll never quite be exactly the same because the 35% that you just took out, well, they're gone. They're out of the picture. And the 65% that's left over, well, those are the ones that are Cipro resistant. So we've just selected for the Cipro resistant drugs. They're not going to take over and be our entire microbiome, but they're going to become more dominant, more powerful. How do we recover from antibiotics when we need them? Here's the answer. So first of all, this is going to surprise a lot of people. But actually, research suggests that we should not take a probiotic in most cases. This is a fairly new thing. My entire career, I was giving people probiotics left and right after they took antibiotics. But it was in 2019 that a study out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel, published in the journal Cell, came out and showed us in, like, convincingly that when a person takes an antibiotic, if you actually start taking a probiotic afterwards, it slows the recovery of the gut microbiome, that the gut actually recovers quicker without that probiotic. There are some cases where I will still give one. It involves a person that has a history, a history of Clostridium difficile. And Michelle, you're not like just complete transparency for everyone who's listening because I know you know this, but you're not my patient. But in a person hmm. who has osteoclitis, I would be open to the possibility of taking a of using a probiotic to protect them from this clostridium difficile infection 
But that's because in ulcerative colitis, this is, there's a much higher risk of that happening. And I want to protect my patient who has ulcerative colitis. That's, the, that's like where my head is at. But for most people, you don't need to take a probiotic. Instead, here's what you do. You want to empower the good guys. And the way that we do that is with, by, is with prebiotic-rich foods. You should be eating a plant-predominant, plant-based diet before you even take the antibiotic. Continue it during the antibiotic and continue it after the antibiotic. And that is giving your gut the support that it needs so that it is being elevated the entire time. And then it will actually rebound much faster when you're done with the antibiotic. And we actually have studies that support this, that people on a plant-based diet, there is less harm. So like that Cipro with 35%, well, if you're on a plant-based diet, that might be 20%. That's a substantial difference. And they also recover faster afterwards. So support your body with a plant-predominant plant-based diet. And beyond this, the other thing is make sure that you are not sabotaging your own recovery. So like if ever there was a time to take a break from alcohol or to like not be consuming as much um, refined sugar, you know, or to avoid the saturated fat, this would be the perfect time to be doing that, ideally for two to four weeks. And if you give it four weeks, your body is going to be in a really much better spot by the time you get there. If you give it at least two weeks, it's, you know, you're at least like really giving it a decent chance to get rolling. So I say, you know, eat plants, avoid the saturated fat, the sugar, the alcohol, and then lean into things like spending time outdoors, exercising, um, sleeping, things like that. Those are, those are all great tips. <clears throat> a lot of people choose their, their, the, the diets that they're going to follow based on, on weight loss. And something that I hear a lot in my own personal life and online is the keto diet. Uh, how do these more restrictive diets like keto and paleo, and we heard a little bit about like the carb, carb, free diets earlier. Uh, how do those impact your gut health? Well, um, I, first of all, welcome more research in this arena, like, you know, for sure, because there's still, I think a long way for us to go. A lot of what I am leaning into are the basics, but it's, first of all, to do a keto diet, it's impossible to do without eliminating at least certain plants like fruit. I mean, you, you have to eliminate fruit if you're going to do a ketogenic diet or like really minimize it to the point that it's almost trivial. And there are people who are like, for example, registered dietitians who are more educated than, you know, they're one in 10,000 in terms of their education when it comes to understanding nutrition. And they can, they can create a form of keto that still includes dietary fiber. Like you can, you can do that if you're like, uh, you know, a chemist. But that's not what the average person is doing. What the average person is doing is they're taking their fiber deficient diet at baseline and they're digging deeper into a fiber deficiency. And they're cranking up the animal products that are completely devoid of fiber. You know, if your diet is 70% fat, which it has to be in order to be keto, bearing in mind there's zero fiber and fat. 
fiber is a carb. So this is where we run into an issue, and I have concerns about the long, long-term viability in terms of its downstream effects of following a dietary pattern like this, even if it were a plant-based keto. Um, you know, I do think that it would be a superior choice to be plant-based keto relative to a regular keto, but like, I don't know that I see the real advantages to being plant-based keto compared to just eating a wholesome, abundant plant-based diet period. I don't really know that I see any advantages there. Um, and so to kind of take on all of these though, real quick, when we look at restrictive dietary patterns, whether it be, uh, gluten-free or people who go low, low FODMAP and stay low FODMAP or people on a paleo diet, in all cases, we end up discovering that there is, um, what I would describe as a negative change within their gut microbiome, not something that you actually would desire or want to take place. So I'm not seeing advantages to these types of choices um, in in the long run. And when it comes to weight loss, let me just say this: you know, I, first of all, I'm I'm here to say that there is no one size fits all. There there is going to be some people actually who they do a keto diet and they go, the keto diet was like that's how I lost my weight. I lost 20 pounds. I lost 50 pounds. There's going to be some people like this. The problem is we don't yet have the tools to identify who those people are and why that is the case. But what we do know is this, that we do have like really high quality clinical trials done by someone at the NIH. His name is Kevin Hall. And he did a, cl a clinical trial where he took a group of people. They actually like stayed on campus with him, you know, almost like they're staying in a dorm. And that way they had complete control over their food. And they did two weeks on a plant-based diet and two weeks on a keto diet. So everyone did both. And they tracked what was happening to their body during these two dietary patterns. And what they found is when you go keto, you lose weight like very, very quickly. But hold on, let me expand on this a little bit. The weight that is being lost is not fat. It's mostly water and muscle. That's what was happening in the people on the keto diet. They did not actually, during the two weeks on a keto diet, lose a, a significant amount, like enough to be statistically significant in terms of fat composition, which is why, like, when we talk about weight loss, it's trying to get rid of the fat. You're not trying to lose muscle mass. You're not trying to just urinate water out. That's not, what are you accomplishing there? Nothing. But when people are on a plant-based diet, it was quite fascinating because they were told this was not like a calorie counting thing. Instead, they were served food and they were told, eat until you're full. And on the plant-based diet, during the two weeks on a plant-based diet, they achieved the same level of satiety, which is basically the term that we would use to say, are you feeling full? Like, are you, are you satisfied with your meal? They achieved the same level of satiety on the plant-based diet as they did with the keto diet. Yet, on the plant-based diet, they were actually consuming nearly 700 calories less per day. And as you measured this out over the course of the two weeks, they were burning fat and they were losing weight because of this calorie deficit that they were able to accomplish without restricting themselves, without counting calories, and by eating until they were completely full. It's just that fiber specifically, and by the way, this is 
going back to the short chain fatty acids, I said, there's more. Here we are. Here's more. Fiber creates short chain fatty acids that activate our satiety hormones so that we feel full after a meal. And so this dietary fiber that existed within the plant-based diet was helping them to basically get to a point where, you know, they're losing a pound every five days. That's what it would add up to, by the way, a pound every five days of fat by eating until they're full and eating this way. And so, I mean, I kind of feel like the science speaks for itself. Wow. So let's talk about within the world of plants, um, the best way to eat plants to have the best impact for our health. So for example, raw versus cooked, like what would you recommend there? And how do we navigate that if we're trying to optimize health? Okay. I, I, I think this is where looking at the gut microbiome research, um, it gets very interesting because it starts to give us guidance on these types of questions. And I know there's these debates <laughs> that exist within the space and, um, but like, what does the science say? Let's take a look. So first of all, if I can only drop like one major takeaway that I think is relevant to literally every single listener, no matter who you are and no matter what dietary pattern you follow, it is this, uh, there's a study that was done called the American gut project. It's the largest study to date to allow us to make connections between the health of our gut microbiome and our diet and lifestyle choices. And when they did their analysis of the American Gut Project, they discovered that above all else, there was one factor that was predictive of a healthy gut microbiome, and that was the diversity of plants in your diet. That was the most powerful thing. Specifically, people were he- who, who were eating at least 30 varieties of plants per week had the healthiest gut microbiomes in the entire study. In fact, more healthy than a person who labels themselves as vegan. Now we can, you know, say like there's reasons for that. A person who's eating vegan, they're not necessarily eating diversity. And they also could be eating junk food. But the point is that the person who's focusing on variety of plants in their diet is reaping the reward of a healthy gut microbiome. So I say, make this the centerpiece of your diet. Make this the centerpiece of how you approach food in your life. When you're at the supermarket, you hear my voice, diversity of plants. You're in the kitchen. You got the pasta sauce. Hold up. Don't just have pasta sauce. That can be a vehicle for diversity of plants. Do that. And when you're at the kitchen table and you're serving up your plate, you think about this too diversity of plants. You always look for opportunities to add more varieties to your diet. So this to me ends up being like the rule that frankly, everyone needs to follow when it comes to the gut microbiome. I have a a question about that because as I mentioned in in another conversation with you, I have been trying to incorporate way, way, way more diverse varieties of plants into my into my diet and I was doing an okay job but now that I'm keeping track and being really conscious about it I was wondering if that means I can eat a caracara orange and a valencia orange and those are two different 
varieties that are included in, say, if I wanted to do 30 to 40 varieties? So here's the thing, Tony, there is no limit. You should not stop at 30. All right. So in terms of like, are these different enough to count as two separate things? My answer is my sort of subjective, you know, like, where do we draw the line? Right? Are, is a red bell pepper different than an orange bell pepper? Where do we draw the line? Um, to me, I wouldn't necessarily describe them as being two separate plants when really they're quite, they're so similar. But at the same time, I always would say at the end of the day, the rules of the game are not what matter. What matters is variety. And so focus on that. So with that in mind, I say eat both. Okay, cool. I was I was mentioning to Dr. B how it has inspired me to check out some of my local international grocery stores. We live next to a Vietnamese grocery store and it's awesome to explore new types of fruits and vegetables that I am not super familiar with. I have like many people varieties that I lean on a lot broccoli, kale, spinach, things like that. But to go and and sometimes even splurge on new varieties has been fun and exciting. And I need to learn how to cook with them. Uh, so I'm really grateful for all the resources online as well for cooking with new types of produce. Well, and the thing is, it's not just the exotics. I mean, I think the exotics are great. There's no doubt. I think it's wonderful to introduce new plants that you've like really haven't been consuming. But also bear in mind that this is also just the fundamentals. Like if you just have one type of legume that you like, let's expand that, right? When you make chili, there is no reason for you to have less than five different beans in there. There is no reason you should have all five in there, if not more. So that's kind of the idea. And you know, real quick, just to go back to Michelle's question, I th this to me is the most important principle. Raw versus cooked versus, you know, et cetera, is less of a, an important thing. This is what is really truly important because this is what the science says. That being said, bear in mind that if you have a damaged gut and you're worried that you're going to struggle to introduce a high fiber diet, eating raw is really the most challenging for your body. And so it can be something that you build up towards, but in, I would certainly not recommend, and we see this all the time on the internet, people who they, I think, frankly, just kind of get the idea that raw vegan is the healthiest version. And therefore they are trying to fix their gut issues and they flip to a raw vegan thing and they spend 30 miserable days. And then they go to the internet and they say, vegan stinks. I don't know why anyone does this. I'm going carnivore. Well, mm -hmm. that honestly is an educational issue. The um, the one thing that's interesting, though, is there's a guy at the University of California, San Francisco, not too far from you guys. His name is Peter Turnbaugh. He's a great microbiome researcher. And um, he looked at this question, raw versus cooked. And what's interesting is that he discovered that if you take literally the exact same food, so let's pretend it's kale, right? You could eat raw kale or you could steam it. When you cook the food, it actually has a different effect on the gut microbiome. And the reason why is because cooking is a form of transformation. You are transforming the fiber. You are transforming the food, the nutrients. 
And when you transform the food, the body interprets it in a different way. And the interpretation of your body is ultimately reflected in your gut microbiome. So I personally say, yes, eat a variety of different plants, but use a variety of cooking techniques too. Okay. So blending that too. I mean, when you blend something, it almost seems like it totally destroys it, but that's not the reality, right? Are we still getting all the good stuff when we blend it? You're still getting the good stuff. It's not, it's not quite the same. It can definitely spike your blood sugar if, if, for example, it's like a high fruit blended smoothie, something like that. You know, a lot of people make smoothies and they don't even have anything green in there. It's just fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not, you're not destroying the fiber. I still think that smoothies are incredibly healthy. But if you have type 2 diabetes, you got to be careful about like how much fruit and how sweet that smoothie is. Interesting. Okay, what about fermented fruit foods as like another form of preparation that sort of changes what we get out of it? Do you recommend fermented fruits, foods, sauerkraut, miso, tempeh, kombucha? Should we be eating them? My first book came out in 2020. I wrote it in 2019. I advocated for fermented foods, but what's interesting is that it really was based on the simple premise that I can't imagine that these are not important to our gut health in, in the sense that Fermented foods, particularly fermented plants, they are the whole package. They have the prebiotics. They have the probiotics. They actually even have the postbiotics because the microbes, like a a ferment, is actually a microbial ecosystem. And those microbes are actually doing the same thing that they do inside your digestive system. They're just given more time and they're effectively pre-digesting the food for you. It's a beautiful thing. But what really changed between my two books leading up to my new cookbook is that in the summer of 2021, again, very close to where you guys live, up at Stanford, uh, two of my friends actually, Professor Christopher Gardner and um, Professor Justin Sonnenberg, they did a interventional study where they took a group of people who were not consuming fermented food because most Americans are not. And they took this group of people and they had them add fermented food multiple times per day every day. And after 10 weeks, they discovered that they actually increased the diversity within their gut microbiome. By the way, this is a measure of health for the microbiome. And they reduced measures of inflammation. So I say, like as two guiding principles, if you give me only one choice, I say diversity of plants. But if you ask me what is my second choice or my 1B, I'm going with fermented foods. I think that you know this is a ripe opportunity because frankly, none of us are doing this, but we should be. And that's part of why you'll find these things. These are two prevailing themes in like throughout my entire cookbook is let's get diversity in our diet and let's also focus on getting some fermented foods in there. Cool. I love it. Uh, we're, we're going to be bringing on Doug Evans to talk about sprouting and I'm reading a book about sprouting right now. Do you have any thoughts on sprouts? Here we go again. Uh, so I mentioned sprouts in my first book, Fiber Fueled, and I came back even more firmly with it this time in the cookbook because I wrote an entire chapter about sprouts. Sprouts are a game changer. Everyone should be sprouting. I don't want to steal Doug Evans' thunder. He is the uh, the lord of the sprout. But just to kind of give a quick little, a little uh, appetizer. So they're perhaps the most nutritious foods that exist. It's a miracle from nature. It, it actually is quite remarkable that you could have a seed or a legume that sits in your pantry for a year. And all you got to do is activate the code using basically some water. 
and they spring to life. And over the course of a couple days, they will multiply their fiber, multiply their protein, increase their vitamin content. And in some cases, they'll actually add phytochemicals that are medicinal. So like broccoli sprouts have this chemical called sulforaphane that is the most potent cancer crusher that I've ever come across. There's actually a research center at Johns Hopkins dedicated to just studying sulforaphane. And you can find 50 to 100 times more sulforaphane in a broccoli sprout compared to a broccoli, like an adult broccoli. So sprouts, you know, there's so much that I could talk about. The other thing that I think is like there's food access issues that exist in the United States. People talk about food deserts. People talk, talk about, you know, the, um, the cost of a plant-based diet. I, I would love, I know we don't have time to really dig into that. I would love to talk about that more. But the short of it is that this is one of the potential solutions because even if you live in New York City in a 350 square foot apartment, you only need one square foot on your counter to actually create an entire garden of sprouts. And you don't need soil. You don't need sunlight. You literally just need seeds and water. That's it. It takes five minutes a day. And to give you an idea of like how intense this can be, if you take a half of a cup of lentils, and you sprout them, in three days, you will have four cups of completely nutritious lentil sprouts. It's amazing. We've been sprouting. And by we, I mean my husband. My husband has been sprouting since he read Doug's book. And uh, I've been really blown away by how many sprouts come from, um, you said half of a cup of lentils, how many sprouts come from half of a cup of lentils. And then uh, I, of course, study food prices with plant-based on a budget. And you can go and get a pound of brown lentils for about 68 cents and turn those into nutritious, fresh sprouts. And that is so much cheaper than going to the grocery store and buying most things. Uh, but in particular, sprouts that they have at the grocery store. They're so easy. They take up a little tiny bit of space on our counter. And uh, you can also do so many different varieties of sprouts. So I'm, oh, we are I mean, loving them big time. <laughs> this is plant-based on a budget. It is, it is, uh, this is so perfectly aligned for that. Think of the savings relative of that where a pound of lentil sprouts is probably going to produce you like seven or eight pounds of, I'm sorry, a pound of lentils will produce seven or eight pounds of lentil sprouts. And think of how cost-effective that is relative to, for example, even inexpensive, really, really cheap meat. You're saving so much money. One thing real quick, Tony, if you're not doing onion sprouts, yo, talk to your husband. They take longer. <laughs> They're like 10 to 14 days, 10 to 14 days, but they are worth it. They are a complete game changer. It's a flavor thing, but you will start putting them on everything. All right. I'm going to do that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Allium, so I'm on my list of things to do. Thank you for that. I have very strong feelings about alcohol, as the people who listen to my podcast know or our, our podcast know. Uh, what do you think about alcohol and its impact on our, our gut health? So... Um, I do think that there is, again, 
opportunity for us to learn more, but I, I'm just going to give it to you straight. And before I go in, let me first of all say that um, there's in everything that I talk about, there's never judgment because like I've been the guy who was 5% plant-based. So there's never judgment on that. And there's not judgment on alcohol either. I enjoy having alcoholic beverages once in a while. But um, I, I, I just think that the argument is pretty darn clear that it's not beneficial to our gut. First of all, very, very clear that if you take a group of people who have alcoholic cirrhosis, meaning that they have consumed alcohol to the point of destroying their liver, which is probably the hardest organ in the body to destroy. It is so resilient. But if you look at those people, what you will find universally in all cases is that there's been damage and injury to the gut microbiome. It's actually a requisite part of developing the cirrhosis. They've discovered that people who are alcoholics that don't develop the cirrhosis, it's actually there's differences in the microbiome that exist between those two people. So it's not, it's not just the alcohol, it's also the microbes, but the alcohol is affecting the microbes. And that's part of how you get there. If you look at people who binge drink, there's changes to the gut microbiome that exists there too. In fact, I think if you, if you look at a hangover, what is a hangover? Um, I'm convinced, I'm completely convinced that a hangover is the manifestation of injury to your gut microbiome. And the reason why I say that is many people believe, oh, it's just, uh, you know, you're dehydrated. Well, that's not true. You can drink all the fluid that you want the next day. You still feel like crap. And it takes you like, you know, typically at least 24 hours to shake it off if not a little bit more in some cases. So I'm of the belief that when we binge drink to the point of having a hangover the following day, we actually have inflicted harm on our gut microbiome. And it's something for people to be conscious of. Does one drink, you know, per day, uh, disrupt and disturb the gut microbiome? I don't have a clear study on that, but what I do know is this one drink per day has been associated with some forms of cancer. So from my perspective, I suspect that it probably does do harm. There are people who will come forward and they'll say, yes, but what about red wine? Red wine contains resveratrol. By the way, resveratrol is a polyphenol, like we were talking about as before as a prebiotic. What about red wine? Isn't that good for us? And you know, the problem is that I think that there's a trade-off that you're making. Yes, it does contain resveratrol, but it also is an alcoholic beverage. And there are other places that you could get resveratrol. It's not just red wine, red grapes, believe it or not, even peanuts. Peanuts contain resveratrol. So you could just like snack on some peanuts instead. Um, so the point is this. I think where you choose to fall on this spectrum of choices is a personal choice. Again, I have shared that I still have an alcoholic beverage despite this knowledge once in a while. Um, but one of the things that I am focused on in my own life is like, I'm not certainly not behaving like a college kid and drinking to the point of giving myself a hangover. I remember reading that part in your first book, Fiber Fueled, about alcohol. And I hadn't I mean, I know it's bad for you, but I never considered that one drink could have an immediate impact on your gut or your health or that like one of anything like that can change, can change your health. And one of the big takeaways from your book was that, you know, one meal can impact your health, you know, 24 hours later, which is very empowering to know that we have 
so much control over our health. Also a little scary, but um, I think that's all really, really helpful really helpful to know. So you had challenged us in our first episode together and all of our listeners to eat as many plants as possible and to count how many plants they're eating. So I just want to encourage any of you listening who did that, let us know whether you send us an email or you could let us know how it went in um, like on podcast iTunes, you can send a little message. Um, I'd love to know how that went. I know for me, just having that conversation, I didn't count specifically, but I did, I was conscious. I have been conscious about, um, every time I'm shopping and I'm eating and I'm cooking, integrating more plants. And it has been so fun and like addicting almost like it's so easy and you feel so good, um, that it's been really fun. I even, I subscribed to a, um, a produce box, like imperfect produce. They have all sorts of like local produce boxes where you can just go online and like pick what's in season and they deliver it to you, to your door. So that's a really easy way to try new things that you might not even like notice at the grocery store. Um, So I just want to thank you, Dr. B, for encouraging us to do that. And I'm going to (laughs) continue, continue the challenge going forward. But I'd love to know if there's another, uh, like a part two challenge for people who are ready to take the next step or that you can encourage people to do to even further benefit their gut health. But before we do that, I did want to also thank you because my number twos have been number fours on the Bristol stool chart. So uh, you have really, (laughs) uh, really improved my life and I appreciate that. I mean, I'm taking full credit for that right there. So, (laughs) (laughs) oh man, that's cool. What have I become? I never thought that I would be this when I decided to go to medical school. Um, (laughs) So I I, I think like, first of all, the idea of a challenge makes it sound finite. This is not finite. This is actually infinite in the sense that I really want people to make this just sort of a core dietary philosophy bearing in mind that the food system is not going to do this for you. So if you want this to happen, which I think you should because it's good for your health, if you want this to happen, it has to come from within. And quite simply having this framework, whether it's you're taking the challenge or whether it's just that when you step into the supermarket or the kitchen or you sit down at the table, this is something that's like, it just popped into your head. There it is. Dr. B says, diversity of plants. Um, I think that's the key. And so, but, you know, as I mentioned, if there's a one B, it's the fermented foods. And my challenge to, to the listeners for today is that my guess is that most of you are probably not consuming fermented foods. And if you are, it's probably in a very limited occasional capacity try at least one type of fermented food get it on the table try it see what you think by the way in my new book the fiber fields cookbook we have sourdough we have all kinds of we have sauerkraut and kimchi we have fermented salsa there's a whole selection of fermented recipes for whoever you know for many different uh taste preferences but you know, the other option too is like, if you're not eating tempeh, you should be. So let's work on getting some fermented foods into our diet. And I don't want to put too much pressure. I think to say every single day when you're starting is a little bit much, but I would say this, let's start with 
getting at least some fermented food into our refrigerator or into our kitchen and consuming it at least once a week. And then we're going to start to ramp it up from there and make sure that, make sure that you're doing that. I love that. I love that through these conversations on the podcast, as someone who's been vegan for like 15 plus years, I'm able to push myself in new directions that I haven't before. And I've been doing that wildly over the past month because we brought on so many amazing health experts and pioneers. But fermented foods is not something that I've integrated much at all in my life. So I'm really excited for that. Thank you so, so much, Dr. B. Congrats again on New York Times bestseller list for the Fiber-Fueled Cookbook. I hope all of those listening pick up a copy. We'll include a link in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or resources they should check out or just where they can find you on the internet? Um, so you can find me. Uh, I've, I'll, I'm going to throw in one. You gave me the opportunity, so I'm going to throw in one last tip. But um, you can find me at theplantfedgut.com and there you will find all kinds of different stuff like about my book, about my course. Um, I have an email list that people really seem to enjoy. You know, the reality is that when I want to actually get into nuanced conversations about science, it's hard for me to really do that on social media. It's so limited. So I'll send an email. Um, so if, if you've enjoyed this conversation, that's something that you could certainly sign up for completely free. And check me out on social media at the Gut Health MD on both Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then, you know, the last thing is we have, and this is like as much my fault as anyone's, we have been focusing on nutrition so much. And I just at the very, very last minute want to say this, that your, your gut microbiome is also more than just nutrition. I think nutrition is probably the most um, powerful element to it, but your gut microbiome actually is so much more to nutrition. And so bear in mind, there are opportunities to heal your gut that don't even involve changing your diet or lifting a fork. We have evidence for exercise. We have evidence for sleep. We have evidence for stress. And it's important to sort of understand that these things are out there because as you start to implement and introduce these ideas into your own life, it has to be in a way that works for you. It can't, I'm not trying to make you me. Uh, I'm not trying to get you to eat the way that I do, nor am I trying to have you have the lifestyle that I do. You have to figure out what works well for you. And I just kind of want to put the tools on the table so that people can make the choices that work for them. That's amazing. Wonderful. Well, well thank you so much again. And uh, we're wishing you continued success with the Fiber-Fueled Cookbook and all the wonderful work that you're doing in the world. Thank you, you guys. Great to, great to have this conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us. and. Uh, Look forward to more conversations, hopefully, in the future. Quick reminder before we go to check out our sponsors of this episode, Maxine's Heavenly Cookies. You can find them at maxinesheavenly.com and use the code PLANTS25 to get your special podcast 25% off. Stock your pantry with some better-for-you cookies uh, loaded with oats. And check out Carviva at carviva.com to check out their, their smoothies and their juices packed with lots of healthy, functional fruits and veggies. Carviva.com. Thanks. That was another fantastic conversation with Dr. B. I know I mentioned this already, but it was something that we hadn't done before and, and brought someone back on for a part two. And I am seriously ready for a part three already. There is so much to, to really dive into. And I felt like 
even though we did just two episodes, we had we had to be a little bit rushed uh, for the sake of time. So let us know if you want to bring him back and it, what what questions would you even have for him? Because I have a million still. Same. Wealth of knowledge, such gold. I would totally love to bring him back for a part three. Um, if, if any of you listening have specific requests for individuals you'd love to see on the show, we're, um, we're already making plans for season five. Oh my gosh. So you can let us know uh, by email or over and I, the iTunes reviews. We reread all those. And it's a really great way to support our podcast is leaving um, a review and sorry, not called iTunes anymore, Apple Podcasts in the player uh, and letting us know any of your thoughts. It's just so nice to hear from you. We're obviously not seeing you face to face, but it's such a such a warm, fuzzy feeling to, to hear from our listeners. So um, thank you for those who have also taken the time to write. And a big thank you to our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. Um, if you'd like to support the show for as little as a couple dollars a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash plantpoweredpeople. And we're so, so grateful for the support. And then, of course, I hope that this episode um, resonated with you, but also if you know other people in your life who it could benefit or perhaps help. I know I'm going to be sharing this one with a lot of people in my personal life who I just want to live their best, healthiest selves. Uh, This is a really great one to share. So don't forget to take a moment to do that. Um, And thank you all for listening. We wish you happy, healthy pooping (laughs) and a beautiful day. Talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.